0: Um, I'm going to get us some. We got to get some water because I'm
1: feeling. Did you say cookies? Oh, we're going to get cookies. <laughs> okay, good. One, two, cookies stand before you. That's what I said now. This one is a
0: snickerdoodle. <laughs> Just go ahead. Now, one has chocolate
1: chips in, chips his in the pockets. middle. Look at me. Look at you. I'm eating so many cookies, I'm growing too. Said Ooh. if you want to eat cookies, baby. Just go ahead now. Limit it to two per person, which is pretty healthy. Do you like oatmeal cookies? One, two. Walt
0: Disney's Magic Kingdom Disneyland is growing every Ladies day. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Disneyland, the happiest place on Earth.
2: It's time to throw down, y'all.
1: Have you thought about a visit to Disneyland during your vacation? It's time with your friends when your chores are done. Disneyland is the happiest place on Earth. Join the happy people of all ages. Yes, there's more fun at Disneyland in Anaheim. The happiest country on Earth.
2: Welcome, foolish
0: mortals, to Cobwebs and Phantoms, the creepiest podcast on Earth, where we talk about Disneyland, Star Wars, and all the other things the Disney company owns that we love. On this episode, we are joined by my personal friend, Jeff Moskowitz, Imagineer, former parade performer, and the man who was instrumental in returning the hatbox ghost back to the Haunted Mansion. Happy Halloween, everyone. My name is Scott Storm, and with me as always, my brother on the mic, my cadaverous pal-er, Aaron Absolute Humidity Robbins. Well, Aaron... We uh, It is Halloween, man. Oh, is it? Happy Halloween
1: to you. Spooky Halloween to you, too. Spooky Halloween
0: time. Uh, We have been working this entire month on discussing spooky things about Disney. We've been talking about uh, Disney movies, spooky Disney movies. Yep, spooky Disney board games. And there, of course, is nothing better or more spooky about Disney than The Haunted Mansion. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has been with The Haunted Mansion for 1965 is... Well, the Haunted Mansion to begin with. But then a particular legend of the haunted mansion that uh, that has come in and out of Disney yeah. fandom, and that is the Hatbox Ghost. The Hatbox Ghost. Yep. A a one of the nine nine hundred ninety nine Happy Haunts that was in the haunted mansion for a period of time. Maybe people. Well, I some, mean, there's
1: a there's a lot that you could get into that because was it nine ninety nine? Then it went down to nine ninety eight, and now it's back up. Or we had a thousand. I, mean, I don't want I don't want to tackle it right now. I'm just saying we have it's an issue.
0: we have a perfect person to discuss. Oh that, no man. way! Really? Uh, yes. Fantastic. Uh, Disney Imagineer. Uh, and my personal friend, Jeff Mouskiewicz, who helped bring Hatbox back into the Haunted Mansion for the 60th anniversary of Disneyland. Wow. So with us Fantastic. on the show, I, I don't know. I don't know what other uh, parade performer, Ooh. Uh, scimitar, baker, uh, showrunner, mm. showrunner, uh, and and I want to say reindeer, but I can't remember specifically. Okay. And that's one of the things I want to talk to him so about. So when you say
1: scimitar, he's a dancing sword. Is that what you're trying to say? He danced with swords. Okay,
0: great. My close, close friend, and amazing Disney Imagineer, Jeff Malschwitz. Jeff, I am so happy you're here. Hey, man. welcome to the show. Welcome Jeff. to Bob'sleds, Manthus.
2: Hey guys, I'm super excited to be here. You know, when I heard you were starting this podcast up, I was like, it's it's kind of everything that I love as well between Star Wars and Disney and uh, yeah, I, Scott I love Storm you thrown in, in there. In. A little <laughs> Scott Storm love. <laughs> Well, Scott Storm. Yeah, it was your three uh, favorite
0: loves, right? It was Disney, Star Wars, and Scott Storm. Yep. It was all and that. Scott, yeah,
2: always, forever. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, I'm super excited to be part of the show, and and I'm really happy to to be able to talk about one of one of my favorite projects that I've done in my career yet, and uh, be part of the the Halloween Haunted Mansion love.
0: Oh, it's gonna be awesome, and yeah. we are gonna get into that. But it would. It would be a crime. It would be a crime if we didn't walk down memory lane a little bit before we get into that. Uh, or and then dance down
2: memory lane. Maybe oh, even wow. dance
0: down memory lane. I feel like it would be very self-serving to ask questions about things that you and I both know. And so I'm going to pitch it over to Aaron because I feel like I, I told Aaron before we started recording, you both Aaron and Jeff will absolutely enjoy mercilessly making fun of me. And so I'm going to give both of you
1: the the option to do that right now, if you want. Just oh, to openly make fun of you, or do I get to ask questions about how you know each I, other? I, I, that's think, what that's, I, would I think that's do. what you got to do. That's what you got to do. Well, I mean, I, it sounds like you guys worked in Walt Disney World together. Tell me about how you met. Tell me about how you met, and why he's an Imagineer and you're not.
0: Oh boy, those are two those are two very distinct questions <laughs> to answer. Yes, they yes, are. <laughs> uh, Jeff, do you remember your? Do you remember your earliest memory of me? I have been trying to think back to my earliest memory of you.
2: I think my earliest memory of you—were you a reindeer as well in the Christmas parade? That was my memory too.
1: Must be that's true. That's our
2: first. I think, yeah, that was our first uh, sweating together. That's that's right. So Which, I, don't take that incorrectly. We we literally sweat through Christmas season, just continually, and, yeah.
0: no matter how cold yeah. it was in Orlando, and it does get cold in Orlando. Well, no matter how it cold it was, it was never, never cold in a reindeer suit. That's for sure.
2: No, we we would get to the end of parade route and uh, just peel the fur off and watch the steam rise that's right. uh, while we were freezing in overnight rehearsal. That's that's, right. that's probably my my first memory of Scott.
1: And is that your first Disney job, Jeff? Uh, Performer um, working in the park.
2: No, I actually started in attractions way back in 1995 at the Disney MGM studios, the five-year-old at the time, Disney MGM studios, uh, working animations at the animation courtyard. So I worked on the magic of Disney animation, voyage, of the little mermaid, making of the lion King. It was at the time and honey, I shrunk the kids playground.
0: I did not know that. Do you know that my first, uh, tour as a cast member was at the MGM studios as well?
2: Weren't you a Muppets?
0: Uh, I was at a great movie ride.
2: Movie ride. Yeah. Yes. So I was at so, yeah, movie, we were, uh,
0: movie ride starting in 97. So just
2: a couple of years. You were after. one of the cool kids
1: uh,
2: <laughs> while we were in the animation courtyard being like, oh, I
1: wish I could work on movie ride. Yeah. No, really? That's fun. What's not good about the animation courtyard? That sounds amazing. Uh,
2: oh, no, it's 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 absolutely awesome. And especially at the time we were doing really animation there. Yeah. We had just started yeah. on Mulan when I was there. Um And so working with the the animators down, we, one of the cool things about working the attraction was at the end of the day, after the park closed, we got to go down to the animation, you know, I don't know if not everybody remembers it, but it was kind of like a fishbowl. We called it. Yeah. you look down on the animators desk through these glass windows. Yeah. And, uh you know the animators would go home and we'd keep the park open until like 10 p.m or whatever so uh the animators desk lights would still be on so yeah. we would go down and turn off their desk lights at the end of the night and so we got to see what they were working on at their desks the the clay maquettes that were sitting there at the yeah. desks of mushu and these characters they were developing and occasionally there'd be um an animator still working late that, that night and we got to know them because you know they'd wave to us like Felt like weird zoo animals, <laughs> um, and uh, they you know we struck up a couple of friendships with them. And I remember one of them uh, let me watch a pencil test of Mushu with Eddie Murphy doing some off the cuff uh, voiceover. Oh no uh, way! And just really cool moment. So, so, Magic of Disney Animation had its cool moments, uh, but not as cool as getting to be a bandit.
0: I I don't know. I mean, I don't know,
1: man, that sounds amazing.
0: Yeah, I I. I got to enjoy walking the track of The Great Movie Ride, you know, first thing in the morning and that sort of thing and being there when it was empty, which is really cool. Don't get me wrong. But to be in Animation Courtyard and to be there with actual animators and seeing them work on their craft, that's pretty cool and inspirational.
2: Yeah, I really missed that attraction. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was. So yeah, I started there and then went over to Epcot, worked at the Land Boat Ride for a little bit. Ah, uh, really crump original. Oh, Yeah. Uh, it was still one of my favorite rides yeah. ever, uh, living with the land. So you were a tour guide and,
0: on, on the land then?
2: Yeah. When we were back when we spieled yeah. and, uh, I can still remember most of my spiel and crazy facts about aqua cells and cacao. Okay. Um, <laughs> right give,
0: give me one crazy fact about cacao.
2: Uh well I I had no idea until I worked there and I I was in college I thought I was fairly educated but that's where chocolate comes from is the cacao bean and yeah. uh we grow it right there in the sand at the land still growing to this day which is kind of amazing it's
1: awesome I think that your uh your the way that your career trajectory has worked out is probably the dream honestly of a, of a lot of kids listening to this a lot of families listening to this um you, you where you sort of you you come through Disney parks and then end up uh, as an Imagineer. Is that something you always wanted? Was that a trajectory you saw for yourself at seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old? Or is that just an, an organic thing of being involved in entertainment and the Disney company?
2: It was, it was definitely a dream of mine. It was something that I wanted. It wasn't something that I saw for myself. Um, you know, as, as a kid, you know, I had the Disney Channel and I, I, of course, read all the books on Walt and the Imagineers that I could find, but there weren't many. Yeah. Imagineers were kind of kept, uh, you know, behind the curtains yeah um and not a lot was known about a lot of them um until recently when you start you know learning about all the research in the books written on on mary blair and john hench and mark davis and everybody so um you know i grew up knowing who the imagineers were but to me they were engineers and artists and yeah. i was neither of those yeah. i was a kid who loved theater and loved storytelling um but I didn't, I didn't see myself getting a place there. I I just wanted to grow up and I I wanted to drive the monorail. Honestly, that was the job that I really (laughs) wanted at Walt Disney World. That wasn't what they were hiring uh, when I went to apply, but um, just getting to work in the parks and getting to be part of the magic was something that I wanted to do when I grew up. So grew up in Miami, moved to Haines city, uh, a little town South of Orlando. Uh, And then uh, after I graduated high school and got into college, uh, I was working at Cypress gardens and was like, this is cool and all, but I really want to work. I really want to work at Disney. So I want to go to the big show. So want the big show. I want to go to the big show. It's yeah. time for the big leagues. Uh, so that's, that's when I went there and loved working at the parks. Still didn't see a path to Imagineering for me. Cause at the time I was a theater major in college yeah. and you know, they, there's great entertainment jobs that, like we got to do. Yeah. Um, but not, not people who create their show, not the same people who perform it. Right. So yeah. Uh, didn't really see a path until much later in my career when I kind of put two and two together.
1: Well, I want to hear what that two and two is, but I want to just hear real quick from a selfish standpoint. The brand of imaginary, like like Scott and I and probably you, we grow up with people and they say things like, oh, and I grew up on to be a professional baseball player, a professional football player. And I just like, I just can't even relate to that comment. There's yeah. nothing about that relates. When somebody says, I'm thinking about being an Imagineer, I'm like, good luck. It's impossible. Like, <laughs> There's That no is way. the highest standard of artistic achievement in the world. You will never get it, but keep going. And yet then we're talking to somebody that that has achieved that. To me, I think, and to Scott, that is the level of pro ball playing that is just available to so few people. So what is that two and two that you put together and how do you see your own brand as an Imagineer? What is that like?
2: The way Aaron just framed it up, I was like, you sold me. I want the job. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, when I started really looking into Imagineering and what a, what a career at Imagineering was, what I learned was it's it, it's a place, and I, I hesitate to say this because I get to call myself one now, but it's the place where it's the best of the best. It's the place yeah. where people find their niche, find, find their thing that they hone in on and get the accumulation of experiences and background to be able to elevate it to that theme park design art form. Um for me it was not until I you know went through my performing career, got into television production and realized where my sweet spot was, what fueled me and got me up in the morning was leading a team to make a thing happen. Yeah. And I found that through TV. Um, And got to work on a lot of really great television shows and work my way up from production assistant to production coordinator to production manager to segment producer. Um, And uh, all the way learning leadership skills and learning what it takes to make the gem of an idea or a pitch into something that is a deliverable thing. And assembling an amazing team of talented professionals along the way to help you make that dream come to life. Um, And so that's when I found my role as a producer. Um, and what I wanted to do in the producer track when I realized Imagineering had producers as well and I had this love of an art form that I thought I understand I understood as well as I could understand anything because I loved it so much um, that I could take the skills that I learned of of pulling this team together to create a thing and put it together with the thing that I love to do Mm -hmm. Um, that's when I said there's no I can't stop until I get that role at this place. Yeah. And so that started, you know, years of meet and greets and reaching out to people and telling them, hey, here's the skill set that I bring to the table. Here's what I can do. Um, and it was a lot of years of that's great. We don't have any openings. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, until you know, the the that moment where the preparation met opportunity. Um, and I didn't even come into imagineering as a producer, I came in as a project coordinator. But with all the while, knowing that my ultimate goal, the place I was working to, was being a producer, leading a creative team to make these magical experiences. Um, so you know, for anybody else out there who wants to be an Imagineer, you, you find your spark, you find your joy, find what drives you and gets you up in the morning, and you push and learn and step out of your comfort zone to be the best at what it is you think you do better than anybody else. And you continue to hone that craft and continue to hone that craft and be no uh, be humble and know that you're not the best and there's better out there and go find those better people and learn from them and find what why they do what they do so well. And eventually you start to come into your own in your in your specialty. Um and and that's when you can, you know, step up and say, All right, I can do this, let's do this.
1: Let us go back to uh your your attractions host on the animation thing. Uh, what happens from there get into some stories that feature Scott Stormer he's going to he's
0: going <laughs> to explode
1: he's going to explode you're not going to you're not going to meet my uh, my entertainment contract so you're working attractions all that where do, where does that lead how do you get into a parade how do you get into a reindeer suit from there is that a fair so question there's,
2: fair there 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 is a direct correlation there so one of my roles in the animation courtyard was to work the parade route as a parade audience control cast member during the parade at the studios so you're there to keep everybody behind the lines make sure they're safe and out of the parade zone doing that and those have know, an official no. name
1: they're not just called the get back guy hey get back
2: yeah no pack the parade oh yeah pack. yep say it for so, me one more time parade audience control cast members whose job it is to keep the guests safe during a parade and keep them off the parade route so i got to do that at uh the disney mgm studios so let's see summer of 95 I think it was the toy story parade yeah that's right that's right um and uh we got to watch that parade you know every day as part of my shift and before that growing up we never watched the parades Uh, we watched the nighttime parades usually but not the daytime parades because my parents once we got into the park wanted to get us to the rides and get us here and get us there never really stopped and watched the parade so I knew parades were cool but I didn't know until that role and got to watch that parade every day and go that that's what I want to do. Yeah. I want to be one of them. I was a theater kid. I was not a dancer kid. I had never taken a dance class in my life. Is that and right? So I went to my, yeah. Oh my God. Is dance that not class true for you?
0: Have you taken a dance class? No, no, no. Uh, well, we'll get into okay. it. Uh, not me, but I would never have thought that about you, Jeff, because you are a natural dancer. So, uh, and that, that was one of the things that I always admired about you when we worked together was just, you were a very, very good dancer, but keep going.
2: Thank you. Thank you. That that goes to that goes to my hard headed and stubbornness that I won't take no for an answer and I won't let the fact that I can't dance keep me from dancing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so I'm watching, I'm watching these parade performers every day and go, God, I don't want to do that. So I went to uh they had they're holding a character audition and I went there and got cut the first the first pass. It was simple routine of a box step and a step kick, step kick. Couldn't get it. Uh so left deflated saying all right I know I got to wait a few months before I go back I'm gonna so I practiced that routine just what I knew of it uh and it was like all right next time I'm going back I'm going to do this So I went back for another character audition 6 months later and somehow made it past the performance part of it and got taken to the side to try a puppeteering exercise Oh okay so they put little ping-pong balls on your hand and have you lip sync with your hand along to um a song. And uh what I actually got brought in entertainment for was puppeteering because I wasn't a dancer. I could move well enough because I was a you know a theater performer, so I knew my body and pantomime and that type of stuff. Yeah. But I actually brought in as a puppeteer. And because when I the I, it was all luck of the draw, I was brought in to be a puppeteer for. Uh, Legend of the Lion King at the Magic Kingdom. They had just finished a training, and so I couldn't get into that training. So they're like, oh, go do this shift on the riverboat. Luckily, the shift happened to be paired with, at the time, Mickey Mania Parade. You performed in Mickey Mania, yeah. and there were a couple of roles in there where you just pushed a big pusher unit and walked and waved. And so I, I was like, I could do that. And so <laughs> that started my path during per, down Parade route, uh, getting the. March and you know and dance in the Mickey Mania parade, pushing a big pusher unit and waving to people, uh, and uh, that's when I was hooked. And I was like, parades—that's yeah. where it's at. Yeah. And then just watched all the parade performers and learned the routines and practiced every night at home. And was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get this. And uh, yeah, and then did that for a couple of years, and then and then met Scott.
0: And then we met. And then we met. A uh, s- quick side note about Country Bears, about yeah. Country Bear Sets very, very hot sets. Very hot sets. You're on a boat. You're on a boat. You're, it's, it is a 25, 20, or I think 20 minute set. You're out in the sun the entire time. First and rule is don't go over, right? Don't go over. Okay. Don't go over. And you're entertaining, you're entertaining guests and you're, you're doing a full set there. And I remember one time uh, I was, I was in Liver Lips and I hear one woman talking to another woman and she's, she sees us animating next to her and she leans over to her friend and she says, I think there's air conditioning in those suits. <laughs> and I turn to her, and as liver lips, just shake my head no in this big dramatic fashion. And she says, There aren't. And I shake my head no again. She says, Oh, you poor bear!
1: <laughs> oh, she, kept it, she
2: kept it in character. kept it In character, I like it. Yes,
0: but that was. Wimpertips is
2: a big bear, but bears don't carry around air conditioning. Bears don't, why would
0: yeah. why would a bear have an air conditioner on them?
1: You know what I heard? They have, they have a cafeteria a inside those suits. They can eat. There's a swimming pool <laughs> and inside the, largest the
0: suit. Largest barber shop in the world. Right? <laughs> exactly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So you so you move over to parades, which is where we met, and yeah. uh, and like I said, my most dis- my my earliest distinct memory of you was when we did uh, Christmas together. And we were both yep. uh, reindeer and the reindeer really just sort of, uh, you know, there's a there's a fraternity there. But I also from that, that was the Christmas parade. But before the Christmas parade stepped off, of course, that was when the the remember the magic parade was happening. And so I, I yeah. remember uh, you in the in the remember the magic parade. Again, you were a scimitar uh, dancer for the Aladdin float at that time. And then I want to say you were a baker for the, the beauty and the beast float too, right?
2: Yeah. Early on when we first met, those were my kind of two roles. I started out as a baker cause it was really not a dance role. Mm-hmm. And then learned Scimitar because it was a little more of a crude dance role as I was working my way up and saying, come on, come on, give me a shot. I can do it. Yeah. I can do the big kid dance roles. Yeah. Uh, Scimitar was my next step there. And so, uh, uh, a guy who, uh, you know, Aladdin Prince Ali there who looks an awful lot like Scott storm.
0: There's a little uh, bit of a resemblance. Mm-hmm
2: was uh yeah my buddy there as i was his uh sordid henchman uh dancing out in front of the float there but yeah i i uh i was i was this weird height range uh where i was the shortest of the tall boys and the tallest of the short boys so i actually became the parade swing and learned every male role in the parade yeah over time uh so i was a court dancer from cinderella and a fish from the little mermaid and a stilt walker from lion king and a scimitar from aladdin and a chef for beauty and the beast and a baker and a, we we did it all and uh i don't know if uh, i can ask that, this
1: if i can't that's okay but explain to me more either of you how it works So, like you get cast into parades and then like somebody has all these roles and they tell you what you're gonna play you apply to them it seems like there's a, just a hundreds of different roles you could play it, it uh, how does that work how does somebody cast you in different things and you're gonna be a scimitar. you're gonna be a pusher how does that work you want to take that one or you want you want me to start
2: uh, you, you start, I think we, we'll we have the same thing of, this is how it was done back in the day. That's I have right. no idea how to do it now. <laughs> yeah. I have
0: no idea how it was done, how it's done now back in the day it was color coded. So you would go to a dance audition and it was a big cattle call and they would teach you a routine and the routine would get progressively more and more difficult. And based on how you did in that routine, they would color code you. And so there were certain roles that were of that color code oh, so gotcha. you were basically
1: approved like pin in, collecting for dancing
0: sort of like pin collecting for dancing interesting. yes yes you get the level up. that's right you get the you get the the chaser pin and then you follow everything that's underneath that chaser pin uh for the for the complete set so yeah. so the really good dancers like like jeff was a really good dancer yeah. I, I was not a good dancer uh, which is the reason why i spent a lot of time on the float uh but <laughs> but jeff was a really good dancer and so he would have a lot of roles that then there'd be openings and they would train you for those types of things. And you would at least Jeff, my, my recollection is if you were color coded red or green or blue or whatever it was, you learned every single routine in that, uh, in that color code. And then you were slotted in wherever you needed to go at that time.
2: Yeah, there were, yeah, you got a, you got a color for dance and a color for animation. That's so right. there were some people who were not great dancers, but really great animators and would animate, Whatever character they were in, really, really well. And anime, people this who were in contact
1: were talking about a, an expression of, of an expression the, of, of pantomime, yep. yeah. you know, okay. getting
2: across without words yeah. what you what you needed great. to. Um, and and so, uh, thank you for saying that, but I was not a great dancer. You I were, was a man. Great baker. Um, uh, I, have I was a, question. a great mover.
0: Were you, uh, just, just correct me if I was wrong, were you also in the hoedown in between parades?
2: Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. The See,
0: hoedown. these guys, I'm telling you, these guys, I. Uh, so in between parades this sounds like a scheduling nightmare how do they keep track of who's doing what <laughs> it's, it's, amazing. We it's amazing were,
2: luckily we were young and hungry that's right okay, that's okay. Right. we worked a lot
0: that's right uh so there was the in between parades in between mm-hmm. the three o'clock parade and then getting ready for the uh, nighttime parade there was a lot of time in between and so some people would go and do sets in the park as characters and some people did the hoedown and uh, they would. There was a, a group of of guys and girls, and they would go out into frontierland and they would just do a, a street show. Yeah. And I was not good enough to do the hoedown, but I loved greeting the hoedown. So I would do effectively very small pack, very small parade control for the hoedown, and I'd watch all these incredibly talented dancers go out there. And I always wanted, I always wanted to do the hoedown, but I just was not a good enough uh, enough wow. dancer. But but Jeff was. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we were both living in Santa Monica, but opposite sides of Santa Monica. Yeah, yeah, I go over to see Jeff when he first moves out. We have a mutual friend that is there who is about to go on fear factor oh, as wow, a contestant.
1: Yeah. yeah. And,
0: uh, and I just feel like nothing encapsulates like the late nineties, yeah. like early two thousands, than having a friend that is about to be a contestant ends up being a finalist on fear factor.
2: Right on. Yeah. Oh, he was, he was the breakout star of our crew. That's he, our- <laughs> uh, he made a big, because he actually won. We're like, dude, you've got money you can eat. It's amazing. How do you do that in California?
0: <laughs> so, but but that's when your your production experience really started, right? Because that's what you moved out for, was to was to get into Hollywood as a, as a PA, right?
2: Yeah. So, funny. No, I came out here to be an actor. Um, and oh. that didn't work out so well. Um, Is that serious? <laughs> I got out, here, I got out here the week before 9-11 happened. And so I'm settling in. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm in LA. This is amazing. I'm going to start, you know, taking headshots around. And then 9-11 happened and nobody wanted to talk to anybody. Nobody was casting. No agents were looking for talent. And I went, oh, okay. Uh, Didn't see this one coming. Um, So I was doing some odd jobs. I worked at ADT security for a moment uh, on the third shift because that was the only thing that was hiring at the time. I worked at Starbucks, I worked at Big Gap, I worked... Little known uh, fact,
1: ADT hires a lot of top-level dancers. It's like <laughs> <laughs> right below. I got a
2: lot of experience in that short amount
1: of time. Yeah. They like, Let me ask you uh, a quick question. Why, do you leave Disney? Like, you leave Disney and you move to LA as a just a cold, unconnected actor? Or is there some connection you're keeping with, with the Anaheim Park? Or, you know, what is that like? That's no, so no, I, I
2: quit... I I quit Walt Disney world. I left the company, um, and said, if I'm, you know, at the time I was 25, I said, if I'm going to do this acting thing, I got to do it now. I got to do it while I'm young. And, uh, yeah, moved out here with not much, not much of a plan, except I'm, I'm, I'm hungry and I'm going to hit the streets. And yeah, that didn't work out so well immediately. Um, but you know, I, I, I always believe there's a silver lining to every cloud and, uh, it, it led me to where I'm at because, because I couldn't get a job as an actor um, except for some, you know, extra parts and, and things like that. Um, I was looking for jobs and I had a friend who had just graduated from full sail in Orlando and moved out to LA and called me up one day. He's like, dude, I need a PA. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but if it pays money, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm there. We, PA see, I was serious, pays in almost. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was living in an apartment with five guys uh, in a one-bedroom apartment and we seriously had only ramen noodle soup to eat like yeah it, this is not a joke we were this poor
0: yeah we were That's all, an LA lifestyle L- baby
2: <laughs> yeah and you know you pay your dues and you hope that someday you get to look back on that time and look back fondly but it, it was not fun at the time uh and so I took this job as a PA and that's when my first time on a set, and I was actually a post-PA, I wasn't even on a set. I was watching these tapes that would come back from the field and logging these tapes about what happened in the video. And by doing that, I was like, whoa, maybe production's a thing. Yeah. Maybe if I can't perform, I can be behind the camera. And that led me down a whole new path.
0: Which eventually leads to Imagineering. I mean, to to, sh- to shortcut it, uh, like you said, one thing incrementally leads to another, you get your shot at Imagineering through networking, hard work, and
2: experience.
0: So when you are brought into Imagineering, what is the first project that you're working on?
2: So the thing that I was hired into Imagineering for was um, actually Shanghai Disneyland. Um, The project was just coming out of Blue Sky, uh, which is our first phase where we imagine what it is and going into concept where you really start to flesh that out into what the project is going to be and was brought in as a project coordinator um, on uh, Shanghai and and was so excited about the opportunity came in you know my first day my little welcome to imagineering meeting and and was with my my hiring manager and said you know this is this is awesome and I'm going to be the best project coordinator you ever hired but just know that I want to be a producer that's where I come from in TV that's what that's where my heart is I want to be a producer and he said yeah that's great just Go be a coordinator. <laughs> Just go do <laughs> or, do the job that yes, we hired sir. you for. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I, I I will go do that, sir. Um, but was you know lucky enough to be paired with um, some amazing creative talent um, and some people who became very instrumental in my career and uh, kind of took me under their wing and taught me what it was to be an imagineer and what it was to lead a creative process and understood that I wanted to be a producer and let me take on some of those roles um, as part of my job as a project coordinator. So I got the experience in the creative as well as driving the project as a whole forward. So, um, yeah, Shanghai was where I really cut my teeth and, and learned what it was to be an Imagineer.
0: And that leads you. So did you say your, your first role was a project coordinator? Is that right? Yeah. And, and what is your current title now?
2: I'm the executive portfolio producer for the Disneyland Resort for Imagineering. That
1: is a huge jump. Pretty, pretty big title.
2: Yeah, it's, yeah, I, you know, it, it feels like I've been there forever, but I, I haven't even been there 10 years yet. You know, one of Imagineer Imagineering greats, Tom Fitzgerald, said once to me that um, it takes about 10 years to really be an Imagineer. Because to go through the life cycle of a project enough to understand it, you know, our projects take so long. So yeah. when you do one project, and you've done every part of the project, you've done it once. You've yeah. done Blue Sky once. You've done concept phase once. Right. There's all these phases we have to go through to make a thing happen got to do one so after 10 years you've got to do it a few times you kind of get it and you really feel in your skin and that i find that totally true because now i'm heading up to my 10-year mark and now is when i really feel like okay i kind of get this yeah and it's always changing and always evolving and always flowing when you know you're working with different different properties and, and different things reimagining attractions versus brand new attractions and there's there's different things about every project we do which is what keeps it really exciting um, but now after 10 years, I finally feel like, okay, I think I can call myself an Imagineer and feel like uh, I can really own own the title um, and, and can can I really- think that's so yeah.
1: fascinating because when you, when, when you think about like an astronaut, like are you an astronaut when you're in training or when you've actually gone up into space? Like how many times do you do that? You don't do that a lot because the scale of it... Is massive. The cost is massive. Like everything that in that thing is just so big that an astronaut really only gets to be an astronaut, the astronauty part of it, a few times in their life. And uh, Imagineer on the entertainment end of that, those projects are so big. They're so like they have to be thought out at such scale that it's not, it, it's almost like the antithesis to like a tech startup of like, oh, just fail really quickly and just it sure. doesn't, it doesn't even matter. You know, that's just such an interesting paradigm that that company's going to invest in you. To that, you're not even really in the seat of your job for 10 years. Like, I don't know. I think that's amazing.
2: Yeah. And it's, uh, I, I don't want to mess this up, but I'm, I'm almost certain it was John Hench who said, um, you know, be a student of life. That's right. And I've always taken that as like one of my mottos because everything I've done, I, I haven't been there. Wherever there is, wherever I want to land, it hasn't been there. All the steps I've taken have have led me to the next step, which has built this, this, you know, base of, of what jeff brings to the table yeah and i'm yeah. not done yet i have still I have so much to learn there's so many people that i learn from every day every project teaches me something new and so to constantly be a student and constantly be open to learning and absorbing and growing i think is what you know i think that's part of what being an imagineer is i think yeah. we all learn from each other i'm astonished every day that i get to sit at the table and brainstorm and think with these amazing creative talents Um, And I learn so much from them every day. So it it keeps you going.
1: Quick history check. It sounds like you may have grown up not in California. If that's true, when is your actual first time in Disneyland?
2: My first time at Disneyland was uh, 2001. I took my first trip out to California on spring break. Okay. And came with one of my best friends um, to Disneyland. California Venture was like three months old, mm-hmm. I think, at the time—two months old—and uh, got to experience Disneyland Resort uh, as an employee or just really, as
1: a person. Where where are you at in your
2: work at the time I was an employee at Walt Disney World, okay. um, and I was, it was I was twenty four right before I moved out here. So it was really weird because I grew up with Walt Disney World. That was where I went, you know, every year. Drugged my parents there. Knew Walt Disney World like the back of my hand. Yeah. Came. It's we. It was weird walking into a Disney park for the first time. Totally, and Um, also one that is
0: so similar. I mean, Magic Kingdom where our home parks, and walking into Disneyland, it's a very Twilight Zone experience. I think for for someone like you or I, where you've gone into the Magic Kingdom thousands of times, you know every single nook and cranny of that place. You walk into a place like Disneyland. And everything is where it should be, sort of. Mm, but then yeah. there's like a <laughs> giant mountain there. Like hmm. that's that should not be there. And and there's and especially for for you and I as cast members, you know, we see Belle or Cinderella, and we're like, that's Belle and Cinderella, but it's not exactly Belle and Cinderella because Belle and Cinderella is back over at You know, Magic Kingdom it's just, it's just that everything is just a. It's almost like being in a dream state of this place that we know everything about. That was my experience. Is is that what it was like for you uh coming in as a cast member?
2: Yeah, totally. And it was, you know, back then I didn't have the background and experience with design that I do now. Now I can walk in and really know what what I'm sensing that's different. Yeah. Um back then I just knew something was different, mm. but it's really at the scale of Disneyland. The scale of Disneyland is more intimate. Uh, You know, Main Street is at a much more intimate scale where we were used to Main Street at Magic Kingdom, which is at this much more exaggerated scale to go along with Cinderella Castle and and everything there. So um, the the scale, the way this land is used at Disneyland, every square inch, because they don't have the blessing of size where Disney World is, is used methodically and meticulously. Yeah. Um, So transitions from one land to another, transitions from one attraction to another are much more chalked you know uh, full of, of of things to look at and lush greenery and everything else where it's almost like when you think of it as like a camera pass your camera pass from uh, walt disney world the magic kingdom is a nice long slow drawn out you know wide shot yeah where as disneyland it's a lot of quick cuts but done really beautifully by amazing art directors who knew how to do that yeah
0: yeah um, i call it more so, magic per square foot like it just feels yeah. like there's, there's just more magic per square foot in Disneyland than there is in Disney world. It's not to say that there isn't magic in Disney world. It just takes it. There's just a longer period of time uh, for that magic to, to happen to you as opposed to Disneyland, where it's just like one thing after another, every single time you take another step, the scene changes quicker. Like you just said, easy softball question. Do you feel reinvigorated every day that you
2: wake up? Yes, I do. I, it, it really is a dream job. Um, it's the job I dreamt of as a kid uh, it's a job that I didn't know I, I would have the skills to have and, and worked really hard for. So every day that I get to get up and put on my name tag and call myself an Imagineer, it really is. it's 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 invigorating, it's exciting. and it it, it comes with um, a, a lot of of weight that I carry around with me yeah. to make sure that I'm doing that job right, that I make sure that i'm I'm serving the company, I'm serving our guests. I'm serving Walt's vision. I'm serving the future of where we're taking the parks. Yeah um, every day and making sure that we make those right choices, um, for all of us. Uh, and and we do that with a lot of brilliant minds weighing into that. Um, and, uh, it it really is exciting. Every day is new. Every day is, is, uh, adventurous and, and change ever changing and our business is changing and the way our guests use our parks is changing. And so you have to be constantly adaptive to that and really understand the guests and how they're, how they're behaving, what are they doing in the parks, and what are they enjoying, what are they not reacting to anymore that used to always be the go-to, you know, in terms of the way they absorb themed entertainment and ride systems and things like that. So it's, yeah, it, it, every day is new, every day is exciting, and uh, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to do what I what I get to do.
1: I love that this, uh, this 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 episode is an audio allegory for your walk to the Haunted Mansion. Like we started, it was in the Esplanade. We went down Main Street. It was nice and cozy. There was reminiscing. Kind of went through, uh, you know, the the New Orleans Square. And and, and now we're walking toward it. It's going to get a little dark here eventually. It's going to get a little dark. going to get a I think, spooky. I think we're going to get there. Yeah.
2: Uh, I'm ready for foreboding. Let's it, do it. Yeah, yeah. Very
0: yeah. nice. Very nice. You worked on... Hatbox and bringing Hatbox back to the Haunted Mansion. So I feel like you are an expert uh, for this episode to talk about the legend of the Hatbox Ghost. So the first question that I have for you is, what is, in in your understanding, what is the legend of Hatbox at Disneyland?
2: You know, Haunted Mansion was went through many iterations in its planning and went through a lot of creative inputs and, and kind of became this amalgam of a couple of different design theses to put this this show together, um, and when they really started to work it out and landed on the concepts that they move forward with, um, they had a special effects designer Yale Gracie, who you know led the design of, of all the special effects and the Peppers Ghost inclusions and and all those amazing effects that make the Haunted Mansion what it is. If there was anybody who's you know. Uh, important to the Haunted Mansion, it was Yale.
0: I, I think um, I, I heard you at one time refer to Yale as an illusioneer. Yes. And, and I, an I feel illusion- like that's, that's a, a perfect description yeah, that's of who right. Yale Gracie is.
2: Yeah, he was, uh, you yeah, know, he, he, he took the tricks of old and made them new um, in a way that very, very few people could. Yeah. And he was, you know, incredible and, and a, a Disney man for a very long time. Um, knew Walt's vision and, and what needed to be done and created these magical things. Um, and so Yale you know, created all the effects that we know and love now um, and created them up at Walt Disney Imagineering or WED at the time in Glendale where you you set up mock-up spaces and you kind of curtain it off to about what you think the light levels and things will be. But when you get into the, the actual show box and you're installing the actual things, sometimes... Uh, you haven't seen all the pieces and parts put together in that same way. So when they got down to Disneyland and were installing that attic scene in the bride and, and everything that was there and had hatbox there, the effect that Yale had designed in his studio in Glendale couldn't be accomplished the same way because of the light levels and light spill and everything else that was happening in that scene yeah. in, in Disneyland. So uh Right around opening, Yale uh, removed uh, the Hatbox Ghost, and and from what I've understood from some other um, Imagineers um, who who grew up there uh, around that time, remember seeing Hatbox Ghost on Yale's desk for quite a long time. He was still tinkering with; he was still trying to get it to work and figure out a new way to do it, knowing now what he knew from the install. So yeah. guests saw it down at the park for just a little bit of time, but. All the promotional materials, the, the records and books and things that were done to get ready for the Haunted Mansion opening had been done way ahead of time. So the Hatbox Ghost, because he was one of the main specters in the Haunted Mansion, was included in all of this material. So people got to know who the Hatbox Ghost was. But if you weren't there the opening day or so around that time in 1969, you never got to see him.
0: So that was, that was gonna be one of my questions was he, he was in the mansion for a short period of time. And so guests did get to experience him, but, but he was taken, he was taken out shortly after that.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's like a trailer. T- it's <laughs> like, hey, I watch the trailer, and then you go see the movie, and you're like, well, that shot isn't in the actual movie. Like, what the heck?
2: We that were. T- box was on the cutting room floor. Sadly, that's yeah, right. Yeah.
0: We were talking to Jim Hill a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about his first trip down to Disney was in 19. 19- I think he said 19. 19- I think he said 69 was his first trip down to Disney Land, and that he had gone on the Haunted Mansion. He had, and that his one souvenir was the. The storybook of the haunted mansion, and of course, Hatbox is on there. And he heard yeah. the narration talking about Hatbox, but he never saw Hatbox. And so that that actually ended up launching him into his desire to learn more and more about Disney history and Disney engineering and that sort of thing. So it's interesting to hear that yeah. yes, gu- guests did experience this thing, but not for very long.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and a lot of guests like Jim, you know, grew up with these things or or got into the haunted mansion later on um and, and you know went back and collected the story the story of the haunted mansion and, and things like that um and occasionally he was brought into new merchandise uh because they knew that it would strike a chord with fans and things so it, it, every once in a while the the fuel was fed yeah um, yeah and there was you know once the internet became a thing there was an outcry online for bring back the hatbox ghost yeah. and, um there was a D a, a d23 expo where a couple of imagineers we're trying to show um, a piece of, of animation that they had designed, and they cladded him as a hatbox ghost, which everybody thought was a tease that Hatbox was coming. Yeah. Um, and but it uh, wasn't. It, was, it, it wasn't. It, it wasn't. But it did happen that a couple of the Imagineers who worked on that piece were some of the ones that actually worked on Hatbox later on. Okay. They just weren't quite connected. Yeah. Um, so what happened was when we were getting ready for the 60th anniversary of Disneyland. Um, you know, what we wanted to do is bring some new magic to our classic attractions for the 60th. And so there was a slate of things that we were gonna do and and um you know, do new windows on Main Street, um, which we did for the 60th, new magic in the Matterhorn, and then um the hatbox ghost was on there because uh one of our present-day illusioners, Daniel Joseph, who uh became our special effects lead, had figured out a way to make the hatbox come to life and make that trick that Yale tried for so long come to life and this was kind of where Daniel's career was headed he Yale was his hero growing up yeah he oh, that's tinkered awesome. and created these effects and grew up wanting to be Yale Gracie so to him this was the thing that he was born to do yeah um, and uh, he's a brilliant special effects designer
1: just real quick because we we just left something untouched and I don't I don't I don't know if we want to touch it and, and go back into but there was a real hatbox ghost that Yale Gracie built that was in the mansion that some people saw that was taken out and then put back and then taken out. And then eventually it's just never put back in. It just goes away. Do we know what happened to that? Do we need to know? Or, because that becomes part of the legend, part of the allure, part of the internet's outrage is that lots of stories come up of, no, it was in there and nobody meant to remove it. It just kind of disappeared. Like nobody knows what happened or no, it was never in there. People imagined that it was an actual ghost. There's There has been that that's developed. Is, is that something you can or can't talk about? what actually happens to the real Hatbox Ghost? Uh,
2: I, I could touch on it. I, the thing is, we don't know. Okay, um, great. No, that's I my preferred story. Uh, so, you know, the actual Hatbox Ghost you know, was brought back up to Glendale, where Yale continued to work on the effect. Um, but, you know, when you look at the actual construction of Hatbox, there wasn't much to him. He was kind of a wire-framed figure that was cladded in almost a cellophane-type material to give him a body and a form that then costuming was draped over um and there was a face uh in the hatbox and a face on top of his head but um nothing there was really solid so i think uh the thing is we just don't know what exactly happened to the hatbox ghost figure over time it probably was mined for parts or you know yale said oh well i'll, I'll take this effect head and, and move it over to this thing over here we did we just don't know we just know that over time it was gone yeah and there really wasn't any molds or anything made of it except one thing we did find in the production of hatbox um was his head
1: mm. um that's spooky we, man
2: yeah, <laughs> great. It, it's kind of apropos.
1: <laughs> I know, it's, it's perfect. And then let me, let me, I think a lot of our listeners, I think me especially, we wonder why Disney makes a decision it makes. Why finally the hat box goes? Why did you bring it back? Was it internet? Was it internet outrage? Was it just the 60th? And a lot of us, we just have no idea how a company like that makes the creative decisions that they do when when they seem obvious to the fan base and they don't get done and then something comes out of there. But in this case, you're saying it's kind of it was the right designer. It was a technological achievement that allowed that to happen. Is that that accurate?
2: Yeah, there was a lot of Imagineers over the years who looked at different ways of bringing the Hatbox Ghost back to life. Um, it, what, what I think made all the stars align was a team that had a passion for it, um, the opportunity to bring a piece of new magic to a classic attraction that we wanted to do for the 60th, And the fact that the effect had finally reached the pinnacle of technology, that we had had all the pieces and parts, the right designer, the right design team, who said, let me show you, I think we can do this in a really convincing way, and I want you to see it. Mm. And so it really was the stars aligning to say, this is the time, this is the right time to bring him back to afterlife uh and bring him to the haunted mansion uh for the 60th anniversary
1: so the guy that was supposed the guy that was born to to redesign to redeploy the hatbox ghost got to do that and that is the hatbox ghost we see is is the life work of somebody who was literally born to do that yeah that's amazing amazing it's amazing it makes me happy to be alive right now (laughs) usually (laughs) i'm kind of so so but (laughs) you feeling good today i'm feeling really good about that story that all right. Let's get scarier. So what was your
0: experience? What was your knowledge of the Hatbox Ghost before you were assigned to the project? And was this a project that you were asking to be a part of, or was it one that you just ended up getting assigned to you?
2: Um, so I, I definitely knew of the Hatbox Ghost before working on this project. I, like you know many Imagineers and fans was you know knew the lore knew was a, a fan of, of bringing it back to life and would love wanted to be a part of that yeah um i happened to be on the disneyland team at the time i was aspiring i had just moved out of project coordination to be assistant producer i was just starting on the portfolio looking to sink my teeth into something had a great leader uh an executive producer and executive uh, creative executive um that were looking to give me an opportunity to do a thing and so i kind of I kind of lobbied for myself to be able to be the producer yeah. for Hatbox. Like I said, look, guys, this is this is a piece that I can really just do, and I can take off your hands, and, and I'll you know I'll watch over this one. They they were kind enough to let me do that one, uh, so I got lucky enough to get attached to Hatbox. Um, but it was uh, it was because I believed in what Daniel and the team had put together, and said this is something I want to put my name on. This is something yeah. I know we're going to be proud of. Because um, it really is the right time for the right piece of magic to bring this back to life, and so that—that's how I got involved um, with the team.
0: So, so tell me when you were looking to put Hatbox back in. And I think probably a lot of our listeners wonder this because there's so much mystery around the story of the Haunted Mansion about Constance Hatchaway and the ghost host and Master Gracie and that sort of thing. So is there a story specifically for Hatbox? Like what is his other than being a fan favorite, other than being part of the original Haunted Mansion, is there a specific story for why Hatbox is in the Haunted Mansion and why he's specifically in the attic?
2: One of the things that I love about Haunted Mansion specifically, and Pirates is very much like this too, is there's such a wealth of characters that have obvious amazing personalities designed into them and looks and backstories and, you know, from the opera singer to Madame Leota to the ghost in the coffin screaming, let me out. We don't give you any of those stories the guests kind of fill in those backstories because they want them so badly. Um, Hatbox is kind of one of those, you know, there, there was not a real laid out storyline for him or how he was involved, but we knew that by looking at the original plans, figure 42 Hatbox Ghost was on the plan right there across from the bride In the attic, we knew that there was this beating heart bride and the hatbox ghost and this kind of story of of the husbands woven into there over time that linked them together. Yeah. And so when we um, decided to put in hatbox, we had some really pretty deep discussions on how much story do we go into? How much backstory do we go into? How much do we paint the picture? And we kind of leaned on erring on the side of making sure the story made sense, but not filling in all the gaps. So what we did was um, left you little breadcrumbs along the way to tie them together. So one of the additions when we put in the hat box a couple of years before that, the changing pictures of the husband's heads with the bride in the attic uh, were installed. So what we did to add to that story was we had um, some amazing props designers buy these period hat boxes and place them near each one of those husband's. So it kind of lets you put the pieces together. Sure. Like, oh, was he working cahoots? And that's why each one of their heads is disappearing. Cause it's in those boxes. Uh, it did, How does all this work together? And we don't give you those yeah. storylines. We give you the breadcrumbs to put it together yourself. And so, um, that's one of the things I, I, I think is great about the mansion is, is there's 999 ghosts. We see a handful of them, um, and bringing one back to life. Um, it, in that scene in that same scene and tying those pieces back together that kind of became frayed when he left sure, um, was really gratifying to to pull it in.
1: Yeah, I think- Back he, to death, just to be accurate. Or afterlife, yeah. like okay. I like afterlife.
2: Yeah. Sorry, I coined the phrase, I should keep going. That's right, you keep, yeah, just double <laughs> down on it every
0: single time and then it becomes a meme. That's the next thing you know. Um, you know, I think a, a perfectly acceptable answer to that last question would have been because Mark Davis had it in there. Like that—that's the only story you need, as Mark Davis said. It should be in there, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And you know, Mark Davis's sketches were one of the few things that we had to go off of. There weren't detailed drawings of Hatbox. There were some pictures that were taken in Glendale before it went down yeah. to Anaheim. Um, there was Mark Davis's drawings, um, but there wasn't a ton of background on him, um, and so we leaned heavily on on what we knew existed and made him so that he felt like he was an original, the, the hatbox that we created felt like it was the original hatbox that was there in 1969. Yeah. But beautifully hid this amazing new technology that wasn't possible until 2015, until we installed it.
0: You set me up for almost uh, perfectly for my next question. Cause my question wow. was going to be, how did it's almost like you guys rehearsed this before I got here. And, well, listen, you got to keep up. Man. I know. I know you got to keep up. Uh, <laughs> totally. my, my question was going to be, how did uh, Imagineering like balance the, the technical advances that allowed you to do Hatbox, but um, I'm glad we're going to cut this because I want to make sure I'm saying it the right way. How did Imagineering balance the technical advances that allowed you to do Hatbox, but not make it feel newer than the rest of the Haunted Mansion that fit within the feeling of the way the mansion looked and felt back in 1969 with incre- with small incremental changes along the way. Um
2: so I think one of the things that I think imagineers do beautifully is the show element of what we do. What we do is incredibly complex and technical and scientific that is shrouded in an amazing show element that makes the technology indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, And so, especially when we do something like Hatbox goes, that's what we, that's what we aim to do is make sure that it is seamless and especially going into an attraction that, you know, is 45 years old at the time. Um, you've got figures that are of a certain design age and that you want to make sure you don't call attention to the fact that this thing is the new thing. Right. So when we designed it, we also had a, a brilliant animation team. Who made sure that the movements that we used for Hatbox mimicked something that would have been very simply and crudely probably done in 1969, but did it in a very um, maintainable, uh, well-designed, and engineered way that our 2015 uh, success criteria wouldn't let us get any less than that, right? Uh, Back in 1969, they would use maybe like a a bike wheel to drive this thing that was run behind the scenes or something. We had much different um, maintenance specifications to make sure that he was reliable, make sure that he would work every day um, and keep going. So the teams do that amazingly. And we study, you know, the the figures that are there and how they move and and how they uh, flowed and made sure that when we designed the range of motion for something like Hatbox, that we follow that same set of limitations. And also, you know, he's, he's, he's a ghost. That's not quite a ghost. Yeah. Um, and so he's got to have this kind of ethereal um, sense to him. So when we designed his movements, you know, with his hand on the cane and, and his movement from side to side, we made sure we mimicked and captured that, that type of movement in there as well as part of the show so that you, you look at Things that are in the graveyard, and you look at Hatbox, and you say, "Yeah, they could have been made at the same time, yep. All the same people." Right.
0: Well, I mean, certainly, Imagineers—the artistry of Imagineering—is to be able to make something with modern technology look like it's been there for hundreds of years. In some, in some ways, and so uh, that totally makes sense. That that Hatbox's return would look like he never left.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was the goal. So uh, I think I think we accomplished absolutely.
0: It. So what was it like for you to have Hatbox up and running? Uh, what was it like for you to have Hatbox up and running for guests? And then my second question of that is, what was it like for you the first time you rode Haunted Mansion all the way through with Hatbox up and running?
2: Oh, that's that's the dream day. You know, that's what, you know, people, um, when they think of, of Imagineering and what we do, they think every day is amazing and cool, and it is. But a lot of our days are meetings and schedules and budgets and making sure that production timelines are in sync with when the delivery dates are. Yeah. We're familiar with that, Aaron.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On a much, on a much more boring level, but yes, we're familiar with that.
2: (laughs) It's putting a show together, right? And opening night is amazing, but there's all the rehearsals and blocking and dress rehearsals and things not going right and having to fix them that you got to go through. So, you know, the, you, you, you wait for that one day out of the 600 or so that you've been working on this thing to really make it go, ah, that's what we worked for. And getting to ride Haunted Mansion all the way through and really see that as part of one of the scenic elements of one of my favorite rides. um, And everybody on the team, you know, had this huge passion for the Haunted Mansion and for Hatbox um, was, was an amazing thing. Um, And, you know, we got to ride it many times as we were programming it to make sure that the the motion with the doom buggies and everything else played out the way it should. Um, And that's great, but it's still not the same when you don't have guests there. Right. And so the first day when it was open to guests, um, the team, we all got there early, made sure he was up and running and going and ready to roll. And, uh, and then we went outside and saw this line of guests from New Orleans square all the way back uh lined up for haunted mansion waiting to see the hatbox ghost and it's a moment of elation and extreme fright because you know these people have been waiting to see this thing and cheering for you to do it right and also cheering for you to mess it up right this is twitter
1: accounts ready to go they got they got it all ready
0: (laughs) and you've got me (laughs) texting you you saying don't screw this up don't you dare (laughs)
2: exactly and uh you're like okay here we go let's let's find out so then one of the cool things is getting to wait at the exit and watch these guests come off the ride and you wait with bated breath. And I was really happy that morning that all I heard coming off there was, that was so cool. Did you oh, see him? Awesome. Did, you, did he face you? Any, did you see the ha- the head disappear from the hat box? And uh, it, it was when the, the, the mansion fans who are dressed in all mansion gear with their hat box shirts on, have been waiting for this moment and they come off that ride and you didn't let them down. That's when the moment just sings for you.
1: It's amazing to me, like, you think this is not a thing, that, that that Disney quality, Disney essence isn't a real thing, it's a thing we make up, but then yet I meet somebody, never met before, never talked to it before, uh, you know, who, if I didn't know what he did, the way, the way that Jeff talks, the way that he talks about entertainment, design, production, you can tell he's a Disney person. Yeah. Even if I didn't know what he did, I would know that he was a Disney person, and I just wonder, like... What is that essence? Why is that real? Is that something you're born you, th- you think you're you were born with, Jeff? Something that you learned, a combination of both. What do you do with a kid that feels that they have that where the world just doesn't make or sense? Or a 45 to them. year old. <laughs> or a 45 year old. But what do you what do you do with with our kids who look at the world differently and see the world differently? And then you, you meet somebody like you, and it's just right away, you just know this, this that's a Disney thing. The way this dude talks is a Disney thing. What is that? What is that thing?
2: Oh gosh. That's a good question. Um what? what is that thing that makes it a disney thing i think there's um you know growing up i was kind of the you know a lot of people cling on to their misfit stories i was definitely a misfit i was a nerd i was one that didn't quite belong i wasn't uh, you know i was a theater kid there was a lot that Wait, you mean you would...
0: weren't the cool theater kid jeff like like all the other theater kids Yeah, Yeah, totally. Yeah, Yeah. my theater letterman jacket I wore proudly. Yeah, (laughs) Um, that's right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So it, um, I think you know, to to kids out there, feel they're different, feel that they're not, you know, the mainstream, the norm. That's awesome because the the outskirts, the not the norm, uh, is where the passion comes from. It's where the creativity comes from. It's where you find the time to go down those rabbit holes of story and, and, and things that, that fuel your passion that I think, um, a a lot of us at Imagineering, a lot of us in in a creative field, uh, feel like most of us were not the popular kids. Um, and, uh, I think there's a, there's a brotherhood there. There's a solidarity that, or sisterhood there. Uh, there's, there's something to it that says when you're on the outskirts, cool, you've got a purpose. And, uh, it's to, you know, find your, find your place. And mine was, mine was always Disney. Disney was the place that was my, my happy place growing up. Um, you know, I, I, my dad worked, uh, my mom stayed home, took care of the kids. I was the sixth of six. All my brothers and sisters were much older than me going, going on our trips to Disney world was where the family came together and where it was my, it was my happy place. My dad died when I was eight. So going back like my last memory of the family being together was a Magic kingdom. Yeah. Right. So it's, it always held that special place for me. And and I went down that rabbit hole and just became obsessed with the place and Walt and the story and the, the how to and, and, and storytelling and, and the escapism of it. Um, that was this magical, amazing place where things didn't go wrong. Everything was right. And you could always find your happy place in a place that you belonged. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's, what's always driven me to, to, to the company and to what we do. Um, and then, you know, what drove me to theater was, um, making people happy. And what Mm -hmm. drove me to theme parks was making people happy. And so that's kind of a, to me, it's an underlying current of of why I do what I do is I just want to make the world a better place for somebody who this is their escape. They, they've got all these other things in their life, Disneyland or, or magic kingdom or wherever is, is their place. Um, and I see them and I hear them, and I am one of them. So um, that's what gets me up every morning.
1: It's It's interesting that we describe the the misfit, we describe the sort of hyper creativeness, but when you put that thing under pressure, when you put passion behind it, we you know, you're the third imagineer I've talked to. It always comes out in this very professional, confident way. Like after you've done this for 10 years or whatever, it's amazing how these misfit people start to become very, good at describing things very precise with their description very like it just has this sound to it, it that this respect for happiness this respect for people's time and it just comes out in this way that's just so disney and i don't mean that in a cheesy way but just like yeah this, that, that guy speaks a language that i'll never speak i know i know how to identify the language but i'll never talk that way
2: i think it, i think a lot of it is um i think a lot of it too is a search for why yeah um, For a lot of us at Imagineering, we always look for that why. why. Why is this the right thing to do for the park? Why are we doing what we do every day? Why can't we do that thing over there? There's a constant search for why, and in that search, you begin to be able to write your own narrative and understand why you do what you do and understand why we do what we do and why when we do things a certain way, it's successful and why we do things a certain way, and it's not successful. And so that constant search for why that constant, like sitting with your thoughts and ruminating and making sure that what you do, that's going to go out and be looked at and enjoyed and judged by the masses is the right thing to do. Mm. And I think that's maybe where we find a little bit more of the definition of of what we do as Imagineers because we spend a lot of time with the why of it.
1: Okay. Do your fire, quick fire stuff. I'm done asking selfish questions for myself. These are amazingly deep questions, guys. I
2: like.
0: All right. Well, we asked a lot of good, deep questions and now we're going to ask some ridiculous questions, but not before we get some, some better uh, Jeff Moskowitz questions. So ready? All right. Rapid fire questions for Jeff, Jeff specific rapid fire questions. You ready? Let's do it. All right. Favorite project you've worked on? You have to pick one. You cannot say all of them. tries to make everybody
1: do this. Nobody does.
0: You can't say all of them. You've got to pick your favorite. What's the favorite one you've worked on?
2: Uh, I've, I've got to say Hatbox because I think it was something that, you know, we worked for for so long and it was one of my first attractions or, or attraction elements that I got to put my, my piece of, uh, of, of myself on there yeah. and, and lead this amazing, brilliant team. And I've done so many amazing projects. It always comes back to that one simple little little haunting dude yeah. in mansion.
0: Good answer. Good answer. Favorite Disney IP, favorite IP to work on, and is it the same thing?
2: Uh my favorite Disney luxury property, my favorite story, my favorite animated classic growing up was always Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Um it, it's it's a beautiful story, um, but the the design of it, the color story, the the Ivan neuro design of the background. There's so many amazing elements of it that come together to me to create the perfect animated movie. Yeah. So I'd have to say it's sleeping beauty.
0: The only Uh, one where a guy uh, fights a dragon
2: too, I hmm. might add. Yeah. And that's the thing is, you know, he was a prince who earned his That's right. Prince Philip is
0: very underrated.
2: Yeah. Really is (laughs) favorite IP to work on. I'd have to say is is Pixar. I've had the great fortune to work with the Pixar team on uh, a number of theme park installations doing Luigi's Rock and Roadsters in Cars Land and Pixar Pier uh, most recently at California Adventure and worked a lot with the Pixar team. They're just, they're amazing artists. They're brilliant team members. Um, They care just like everyone else in Disney so deeply about story, so deeply about integrity of their characters and stories and they're just an amazing joy to work with. So, um, if I can say Pixar as an IP, sure. is yeah. that- okay. you can,
0: we'll accept that. We'll accept that.
2: Okay, okay. great. But
0: favorite Disney character.
2: I think is Donald duck.
0: Okay. All right.
2: He's, All right.
0: He, favorite star Wars film.
2: Uh, a new hope. Mm-hmm.
0: Why, why do you have to say it? There like, another- like you were not sure. Why'd you have there to say, what'd sure? what'd you, what'd you say? Well,
2: Is there another answer?
0: Oh, okay. Okay. That's the reason why.
1: Sometimes we try to all answer that. Like there's some bootleg Star Wars film out there that only really inside Star Wars fan. Have you seen episode 12? (laughs) (laughs) There's an episode 12? Oh, you must really like Star Wars. (laughs) You've seen one that doesn't exist.
0: (laughs) But no, it's a new hope. Um, Okay. If you were changed into an enchanted object, what would it be?
2: changed into an enchanted object from beauty and the beast, like enchanted
0: object,
1: Anything, uh, any object that exists in the world. You could be a reindeer bell. You could be a, a, a hat box. You
2: could be the partner statue. You could, I would be uh, uh, the tree at the front of Disneyland. Uh, that's right out in front of the train station. Cause that tree, you can watch pictures from 1955 through the sixties and watch that tree grow. Cause it's one of those photograph spots. Yeah. There's pictures of it everywhere. And that tree has not, has, has been the tree since 1955 and has gotten to watch the evolution of Disneyland throughout the years. And that's that And it's animated by wind, but it's kind of an animate. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The
1: tree. That's literally the best question uh, answer I've ever heard I to any the, question ever.
0: Yes. That is the perfect answer perfect Mm. Uh, i'm just
1: gonna put that on all questions i'm asked from
0: now on (laughs) (laughs) no
1: matter what it is how many dependents are you claiming the tree outside Disneyland.
0: (laughs) where do you see yourself in five years the tree outside of disneyland
2: (laughs) and it's a good spot it'll be there it's a good
0: spot that's good all right jeff dole whip mickey bar or churro dole whip all right every time rope drop or kiss goodnight
2: kiss goodnight yeah
0: favorite disney smell or sound or both
2: uh, the citrus grove and horizons. It
0: mm. ah, is a gr- That was a great smell.
2: Yeah, and it's uh, it's man. been duplicated, but never really replicated no, exactly. Uh,
0: an attraction that you will not go on.
2: I don't know that there is one. There's got to be one, right?
0: I would There's imagine. I don't
1: know.
0: The teacups is my go-to answer.
2: Mm, interesting. Uh, I I don't love the feeling of dropping, so I avoid the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror or or Guardians of the Galaxy as much as possible. Uh Uh-huh. But I will still endure it for others who haven't ridden it before just to see them experience it. But I hate that. I hate the feeling of falling. It's always been my thing. I hate it. Yeah, it's it's
0: not that it's an attraction that you dislike. It's the sensation that the attraction brings you.
2: Yeah. Right. And growing up, like, I didn't... I was... Like, Space Mountain was as hardcore on coasters as I would go. Yep. Working on like the Incredicoaster where you have to ride that launch constantly because you have to go through on test and adjust and fix the show items and things like that. I learned to, to be much more comfortable with coasters. Tower is still the one that gets me every time. It's such a good ride. Oh I feel the gosh, same way, though, man. Way. I
1: don't like that dropping sensation. And the reason why I, I have such respect for that ride is because it it literally turns me into a kid where I get scared and then I don't want to go on it. And then I sit down and I just do it. And then I kind of have that giggle of like release of just laughter. And then I go, it was kind of fun. I kind of liked it. I kind of, I'm okay. And like I feel yeah, like, eight years old. Oh, right man.
2: after you get off it, you're like, okay, I, I could do that again. And yeah. then the next time you face it and you look up at that giant tower, you're like, I, mean, I don't yeah, think You so. guys go... I'm going to go get a churro. Um,
1: (laughs) So much.
0: uh, Jeff, earliest park memory?
2: Coming back from Magic Kingdom. It was the end of the night, but we didn't stay until closing. I was very upset about it. I was probably three or so. I don't know. Um, And they used to stamp your hand with this invisible glowing ink that had a scent to it. It was kind of citrusy, kind of lemony. Okay. Yep. I remember writing back on the ferry, and sniffing my hand, looking at the Magic Kingdom going away from me as we go back to the transportation ticket center, and sniffing that hand and going, "I don't want to go." <laughs> 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 that was my memory.
0: <laughs> wow. uh, what about your favorite Disney parade? Favorite Disney parade? Oh,
2: Spectro Magic.
0: Wasn't it just a phenomenal parade?
2: It really was, and I loved Electric Light Parade. Of course, grew up with that, yep. and then you know got to to. To know Spectrum Magic as I got older, but now like once I hear that song, it just makes me happy. Mm.
0: Glimmering, shimmering. Just oh boy. On this magic night, just an amazing song, amazing parade. Yes. Yes, I would have also accepted any parade Scott Storm was a part of. I would oh. have accepted that answer as well.
2: Yeah. But that's a given. That's it's a given, right. <laughs> it's a moment in time we can never go back to and Not everybody parade, got to enjoy the way Scotty. I... That's
0: right. We just need to cherish it. Yep. We need to treasure it up in our heart. I not
2: everybody got to steal Aladdin's shoe as many times as I did. <laughs> that's true. That's
0: true. You did, you did steal Aladdin's shoe quite a bit. Uh, Jeff, I am so glad that we spent time together. Will you please come back and talk more about Luigi's and Pixar Pier and those types of things?
2: I would love to. And I hope I, I keep making stuff. You guys are interested in talking about. I'd love spending spend time with you guys and, and, uh, you, you book some high caliber talent. And so to get to be counted in that, like, it's pretty amazing. And you run a great show. You ask great questions. And, oh, thanks, and, man. I've done a, a couple of shows and these are, these are the best questions and the oh, best like, format. Awesome. I got an experience. So I'm happy to hear a, that. That's awesome. I love it. Thanks okay. so much for your time, man.
1: Nice meeting you. It's great to meet you, Aaron.
0: It's good to see you, bud. <sighs> it
1: was so
0: good. The thing that I love about it is it's such a casual conversation because it's friend. Yeah. And we're all the same age. Yeah. So we're all geeking out about the same thing. He's just so measured about it because he's like, well, this is my life. This yeah. is what I do. And we get to have that window of it's different than like Rolly or Bob, where it's like okay, well, what what was this experience like for you?
1: Yeah, it's very in, in building history, historical, very respectful, very right. archival, very yeah, very. You're that that was just a very real, very modern, very uh, it connected it connected you to Disney in a way that those other stories can't because those are stuck in time, yeah, which is amazing. But to feel real time magic. Totally different thing, man.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening. We love making this show, and we hope that you enjoyed listening to it. Man, this was a fun episode to make. This has been Bobslids and Banthas. We release every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if we're not there, we want to be. So get a hold of us and let us know where we can put the show for others to listen to it. Please be sure to subscribe, and we would absolutely love it if you left us a review on iTunes. Please be sure to subscribe and we would love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think of the show and it really helps other people find out about it. You can visit us at bobsuzanbanthas.com or email us, podcast at bobsuzanbanthas.com if you'd like to do a collaboration with us. We'd love to do something with you. You can follow up with us after listening on Instagram at bobsuzanbanthas. And until next week, we hope you've eaten lots of candy, watched lots of spooky movies, and had lots of fun. He's been Aaron. Boo. I've been Scott. That was terrible.
1: Depends on what you're trying to do. (laughs) If you're trying to do like sort of like a ghost that's done being a ghost, I think you nailed it.
0: And we've been Bob Sussman Bantha's Happy Halloween, you guys. Stay safe out there and we'll see you next week.
1: Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom Disneyland is growing every day.
2: magnetic musical
0: sound through the magic of light and sound
1: yes there's more fun at disneyland in anaheim open every day 10 a.m. to 10 p.m.
2: you can waste time with your friends when your chores are done Hurry hurry
1: back be sure to bring
0: your death certificate If you decide to
2: join us, make final arrangements now. We've been dying to have you.